Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Many people are passionate about Las Vegas, the good and the bad. And some people, yes, still think that all Vegas residents live in hotels. Well, that was certainly the old image. My guest grew up in Las Vegas in a time when that seemed the prevailing view. But there's a lot more to her than misperceptions about living quarters. Roberta Bobby Kane is the author of Las Vegas Born and Raised, A Young Woman Embraces Life's Adventures, available at Amazon and all the usual places. Bobby is the first known native Jewish child in Las Vegas, and her parents were among the founders of the first Jewish congregation in the city. She's led a full life, both in Las Vegas as well as New Zealand, Australia, Asia, and Europe, and she has connected with some of Las Vegas's movers and shakers and entertainers as well. And she's here to talk about it all. And Bobby, welcome to the show. And thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure. What was Las Vegas like when you were growing up in those days? Was it that everybody thought people lived in hotels? I don't recall that, but it was a nice small town. It was a dusty little town of 5,561 people when I was born. And I was born at the Las Vegas Hospital, which was on 8th Street and Ogden, and that was two blocks out of town. 6th Street, where the El Cortez Hotel is, was was the end of town. In those days, yeah. I have a favorite expression, I wish my father had bought more land. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Shecky Green also has that same expression, except he wished he bought more land, yes. Because people, he was going to buy land, and they said, well, it's a ghost town. And he says, well, more ghosts are moving in all the time. So that's kind of how it is. (laughs) Look at it now. Yeah, exactly. You've traveled the world, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but I'm intrigued more first about your beginning to grow up in Las Vegas and in a certain time and place. Because this was not the Las Vegas that people know of today. As a result, I am assuming that everybody knew everybody. That would be true. The Mormon church was very much in evidence with all of the young people and their churches. And the Jewish people were very earnest in establishing the first temples, of course. It was just really a nice town. I went to Las Vegas grammar school on 5th Street, which was the only grammar school, and then to Las Vegas High School, which was the first public high school. And we lived on a street where Senator Berkeley Bunker lived, who was the United States Senator, and Reed Whipple, who was the head of the Mormon Church, and Frosty Kalin and his father, John Kalin, who was the editor of the Review Journal. So, and it was a very homey atmosphere, Dr. Jack Cherry and some of those folks. And it was just a a very earnest, growing town, of course, in popularity. But you left it, though, at one point. Well, I graduated from school. I was the editor of our yearbook. And then I married early. I fell in love with one of those handsome Irish control operators out at Nellis Air Force Base, and we moved to California. And then we had a year in Germany, Neubiberg Air Force Base. But wait a second. before When you first moved out of town, you moved into the metropolitan area of Blythe. 
Yes, briefly. Well, I'm yes. being sarcastic. It's not really not a great metropolitan area. No, but, not exactly. <laughs> but maybe not sarcastic. I'm being humorous no, in a no, sense. No, but no. what? Why did you end up moving to Blythe, which is even more in the desert than Las Vegas is in the desert? Well, my young husband, my young handsome Irish husband, had Air Force business there. He was put on assignment for a while. I was at the University of Southern California, USC. And so, yes, we lived at Blythe and I commuted and also stayed in, in a, uh, not a dormitory, but a house for young women. So you were commuting between Los Angeles and Blythe? Well, yes, but briefly. We weren't there very long. Right, but you were attending USC at the time. That's correct. And what were you majoring at, at USC? Journalism and uh, English. So you did you want to become a reporter? Well, I had been the editor of the uh, annual yearbook for Las Vegas High School. I had a I had a column in the little newspaper that we did from the school and I did a radio show. But I wanted to focus on your USC years because you were going for a degree in journalism and, and English. So was your idea to have a career in journalism? It had been originally, but once I got married, and my Air Force husband was then sent to Germany for a year and a half. And then I got pregnant very shortly thereafter. About two years in, I was pregnant and had a, a baby boy, first of three children. And so the career had to be through experience and the journalism and public relations careers that I excelled in. So when you first started in the world of public relations, was that when you were in Hawaii, when you ended up moving to Hawaii, or was that prior to Hawaii? I had been working for the Stardust Hotel. I opened the Stardust Hotel. And, of course, I was in sales with Mark Swain. He was Mo Dalitz's man. So let's he explain to our listeners who Mo Dalitz is, because don't forget, people are listening from all over the world, so they may not know well. who Mo Dalitz is. Modelitz was an extremely important man in the development of tourism in Las Vegas. He also had a history of some mob connections. I had met him several times, and he was a gentleman, a very dapper, very quiet, very well-contained man. He met Mark Swain when Mark was a photographer at a ranch in Utah, 4,000 Acre Ranch, and he brought Mark to Las Vegas to be in the executive world. And Mark sold 500 and some odd conventions a year for the Stardust Hotel, the Desert Inn, and the Royal Nevada, which was next door to the Stardust. But the Stardust's main focus was on the gaming side in of those course. years, right? Well, well, I say of course, but Mark brought so many big groups, important groups, into the hotel who gambled and brought their friends and brought their families. So he was important, too. It was an excellent education. You were growing up at a time when the pioneers of Las Vegas were people who either were connected with the mob or mobsters themselves. There was some gaming regulation, but clearly not at the level that it became decades later. What were those people like during that time? You were interacting with them, and did they just seemed... I assume as neighbors, uh, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. The men themselves were gentlemen, 
They were soft-spoken. I saw a great deal of them because they helped develop the first Jewish temple in Las Vegas, Beth Shalom. They were big contributors to the temple. Everything I knew about them was in this later life in Las Vegas. I sat in on meetings with them occasionally when one of their executive secretaries was away. And as I said in the book, Mark Swain used to say to me, take notes, be quiet and respectful, and don't ever repeat anything that was in the meeting except for the financial planning for the Stardust. Given your history in Las Vegas, are you one of those people that say, well, the old days were better than the current days for Las Vegas, where you could get more comps and everybody was a gentleman and you know all of that, as opposed to the corporatization of Las Vegas now, where every element of the hotel and casino has to make a profit? In those days, that wasn't the case. I respect what Las Vegas has become. I think it is immensely clean. The streets are beautiful. I happen to live in Henderson, which is one of the nicest communities I have ever seen. I'm proud of what has happened here with the sports, with the entertainment, with everything that has happened, I think has been well-planned, and I admire it very much. But do you pine for the old days? Well, the, I'll never forget the <laughs> No, I understand that. But are you one of those people that say, well, it was better then because the guys ran the town and everything was comped and they weren't looking to make a profit over every element of the operation? No, I'm not one of those people. Okay. It, it had its time and place. Uh, my dad had liquor stores and the maitre d's and the bosses and uh, liquor stores and beer bars. We had Mike's Liquor Store on Fremont Street, right where the Binion is today. And we had all of the hotel people come in because he was such a good merchandiser. And when we, we would go to the hotel, at one of the hotels, every Sunday night for dinner, and we were seated ringside, and my dad was a good tipper. He was very popular. Mike Gordon was his name, Mike and Sally Gordon. And so I appreciated that we were comped, but Dad always made up for it in taking care of everybody. Right. I was thinking more not so much for your personal experience, but just in the general sense of, of the town. And it was a town as opposed to a city in those days, so it was, it was a lot smaller. I think there was a place for both of them. Right. <laughs> in my introduction, I mentioned that you were the first known native Jewish child in Las Vegas. How did you determine that that was the case? Are you on record that way in terms of yes. birth certificates? Yes, I was the first Jewish child born in Las Vegas, and it is documented through UNLV and their uh, history department. And so oh, I totally believe you, but I always, when everybody, when, when, anytime somebody says that they were this, I always like to double check to make sure that it's not just puffery, but clearly you're documented. <laughs> you're a documented first, first in Las Vegas Jewish child. Are you surprised about the growth of the Jewish community in Las Vegas, the number of temples and synagogues compared to when, again, when you were around, it was just the very beginnings of Temple Beth Shalom? Well, and even before that, the Jewish community, there were only 10 or 15 families when I was born. And when I was a little girl, there were only three or four Jewish children in school. And when we had to miss for Passover or Hanukkah or any of the holidays, I felt a little different because 
only Joey Abrams and Bernard Mendelssohn and I were the only kids not in school. Was there any overt or covert anti-Semitism in those days in Las Vegas? In my opinion, no. My grandfather, A.J. Schur, was one of the first lawyers here. So when you moved from Las Vegas first to Blythe, then on to the <laughs> wider world, I just got hung up on Blythe when I read that. That just struck me as very funny. You've been all over the world. If you had to pick the... Because you lived in Hawaii for many years, obviously. 56 years. Yeah, that's incredible. And so you're going from the desert to an island in the ocean. What was different about Hawaii compared to Las Vegas, other than the gaming? What was it that well, kept you there all those years, besides your job in PR? <laughs> it, it, it is as different as night and day. And of course, they both have their benefits. But Hawaii is gorgeous. The softness of the air, the beauty of the mountains, the sea. I've just come back from nine days there, and I'm constantly amazed at how truly beautiful it is. The big island with its volcanoes and its orchid farms and all of the islands. And clearly you enjoyed your time there. And yeah. you seem to be a very easy traveler. I always have to get prepared two weeks before I'm going to a city an hour from Las Vegas, but you just, <laughs> you're able to just get on the plane and go. Absolutely. And I love anything that moves. I'm a million miler with American Airlines. I'm a, a platinum whatever, and uh, I'm ready to go. And I love trains. First thing I did when I got back to the mainland, of course, when my folks were alive, I would come four times a year, and we would bring them to Hawaii. So it isn't that I lost touch with them. But first thing I did was take a long train ride. <laughs> so you're always on the go. How do your kids, who are adults now, feel about that? They have a mother who is just always on the go. Well, I'd like to think they're reasonably proud. I get <laughs> a lot of exercise. I'm really careful with my diet. I am socially active without being, you know, a nut. And I think it's very important. And, so but, I hope they feel okay. <laughs> you should check with them, make sure. I think they are. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that you were in New Zealand, was one place you went to. Yes. Well, Alex Kane, who was my husband, whom I married in Hawaii, was born in Scotland. He was an RAF pilot. There's quite a bit about him in the book. And then his family moved from Scotland to New Zealand when he was just a boy. So after I met him, we traveled at least once a year to New Zealand to meet his folks and be with his family. And, and again, a most beautiful land. There are very few places more beautiful than New Zealand. Very Scottish. You've been to so many places that it strikes me, Australia, Asia, Europe, and we mentioned New Zealand, Hawaii, clearly. Blythe, once again, I have to throw that in. <laughs> so what brought you back to Las Vegas and what brought you to writing this book about your life? I'll, I'll take the second question first. People have said, uh, friends have said, gosh, you, you knew Jimmy MacArthur and Jack Lord and you saw astronauts. Well, wait a minute. You, you mentioned a couple of people. So just for our listeners who may not know who these people are, Jack Lord right. was the star of the original Hawaii Five-0. Right, which was filmed at my Ely Kai Hotel, 
for, I think, 13 or 14 years. And, of course, uh, MacArthur was his sidekick. James MacArthur, who was the son of Helen Hayes. Yeah, that's absolutely. And the astronauts, uh, I was working at the Ely Kai Hotel as PR, and the astronauts on number 13 who were lost around the sides of the moon for several hours and then recovered, landed in the Pacific, and we had the White House press going crazy for two or three days in the hotel. I actually met the astronauts. I took Jimmy Lovell and one of the fellows and their families to dinner at the Ilikai, and there were very exciting times. I know when you're in the hotel business, because I've been in it, that you do meet a lot of interesting people in a cross-section of humanity. Everybody from politicians to entertainers, celebrities, authors, etc. Who struck you the most in all these years that you've been doing this? Who struck you the most, either in Las Vegas or outside of Las Vegas, who struck you the most as the person you would always want to spend more time with? Well, of course, Jack Benny became, and many of your younger listeners won't know, but He was one of the kindest people I ever met in my life. And if you have read part of the book, he stayed at the Elikai to do some R&R shows for the young military people. And his manager, Irv Fine, took me aside and said, Bobby, uh, Mary couldn't come. Mary, uh, his wife, couldn't come on this trip. Mary Livingston. Yes. And... Jack likes to practice his violin two or three hours every day, and he won't do it unless someone is sitting with him. And he said, frankly, Bobby, I am just exhausted. Do you think you could get permission to sit with Jack while he practices? I didn't think my company would let me, but they did. And for almost a week, I sat in Jack's suite, and he would practice, and we would drink tea, and he would practice. He was the concert level performer, as you know, and he was just darling. I could see how that would remain a memory for you and someone you would want to spend more time with, although you did spend a week with him, which is more than most celebrities you would yes. you would be connect- yes. connected with. When you look at your life in terms of growing up in Las Vegas and in the book, you talk more about your experiences and what it was like, and that's an important part of the book, but so is your travels and your life with your husband. Did you make the decision to come back to Las Vegas because you felt it was coming full circle? Well, my husband, Alex Kane, started developing dementia, and the family, include I have three of my born children, but I have four children of his whom I inherited when they were in their teens and young 20s. And the entire family, I have seven children. Pretty the impressive. The entire family <laughs> felt that it would be good to get me on the mainland. And so I had Alex in senior care for 19 months. And I was with him every day. don't mean to say the best 19 months, but we spent more time together than when we were both in business together and, and parts of groups and luncheons and, you know, and breakfast meetings. So for 19 months, we had only each other, and then the children all came to visit. And so I have remained. <laughs> Understood. Why did you decide to write the book? How did that evolve? Uh, and Because, again, you 
like to travel, you like to move, and now you have to sit down and actually write. So what, what was the impetus behind that? I met Barbara Tabak of UNLV, and who was teaching a class in memoir writing at Paseo Valley Library. And people had said for years, Bobby, you have had such interesting adventures. Why don't you write them down? And so since I had time on my hands, I started, I took that class, and then I took it again. And out of that formed a group of nine women who enjoyed each other so much and encouraged each other writing that we still meet every Tuesday uh, for lunch or Zoom or something. So that was the impetus. How long did it take you to write the book? A little over two years. And I just had a lot of help. The memoir group itself, which is an interesting group of women, wide variety of experiences, were very supportive. Three of us have published now, and Amazon does a heck of a good job allowing a book to be published and selling copies for you. I mean, it, it's a very nice service. It's a different world than it used to be in the world of publishing, that's for sure. <laughs> it sure is. What was the experience that just remains as the most important in your life? That's hard to answer, truly. Uh, it may be more than one, too, I understand. Yeah. Well, I feel that the heritage of my family Mike and Sally Gordon and all of the relatives who lived here gave me a great foundation. I was a privileged only child, and my folks were in business, and everybody liked them. I went to great schools and had great teachers. The foundation was good. My parents were so supportive. I did well in school. I married too early. I should have completed my education, but I tried to make up for it by gathering valuable experiences. Which you obviously so, did. So I would think that it's a hard for you to answer the question about what was the most impactful experience you've had because you've had so many. And they blend into appreciation for everything that has occurred. I've had a few tough spots, but my dad always told me that if, if I fell off a horse to get back on and succeed. Well, that's a great way to end it. My guest has been Roberta Bobby Kane. She's the author of Las Vegas, Born and Raised, A Young Woman Embraces Life's Adventures, available at Amazon and all the usual places. A portion of the proceeds from sales of the book will go to the UNLV Oral History Research Center. Bobby, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it very much and good wishes to all. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.